This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. So today I'm speaking with Dr. Angel Monfort. She is a clinical psychologist with a specialization in perinatal mental health. After having children of her own, she became very aware of the need for greater awareness and support for perinatal distress. Dr. Monfort opened the Center for Maternal Mental Health and is dedicated to providing a space for those who are emotionally overloaded, those who don't have a village, and those who are struggling to find the me in mommy. So to start, I thought you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your family, and how you specifically became interested in this area. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So I live in Florida. I have, I have a private practice there, um, like you mentioned. I got interested in this right after, maybe a year after I had my fourth child. And I was already working as a psychologist at that time. And I was working in a women's clinic in a hospital. But I was the only person on staff who had children. And so I would often get the referrals from anyone who was struggling with perinatal distress and realized pretty quickly that me having kids did not mean I understood perinatal distress in the way that it was coming into my office. So I went to then get a little bit more training and I did the postpartum support international training. And it just was like mind blowing to think of, to know more about all of the intricacies of pregnancy and then the postpartum period and how it really is, it's more than just the baby blues when a mom is is telling you that she's distressed. And it's more than just, well, you have a kid and you're not sleeping and that's probably what it is. There's a lot more. So learning about that, I became super passionate about that. And then a couple of years ago, um, branched into a private practice in order to have a little bit more of a work-life balance because I was at that time was working like 50 hours a week and very rigid scheduling and all of that kind of thing. So that's kind of how I got to where I am now. And I'm absolutely in love with it. Did you experience anything yourself, like mood wise after having children? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But at the time I didn't know what to call it. I just was like, I'm so bad at this. I, so my, my oldest is 11. When I had her, I was in graduate school and still, but I mean, I was like halfway through graduate school. I was seeing clients. I was, you know, and I still did not catch that what I'm experiencing is different than just like I explained, you know, just the baby blues, whatever. I'm thinking like, this is just, you know, how probably it is adjusting. But then I had a couple of friends who then later had babies and did, did not seem to be struggling as much as I was with kind of being in the middle because like I knew the one extreme of motherhood is amazing and the best thing that ever happened to me. And me and my baby are just like taking a picnic in our white linen outfits and stuff like that. And I, so there was like that one side that I wanted to be. And then there was the other side of that you see often in the news where it's like, you know, severe postpartum depression or hurting yourself or hurting your baby. And I didn't realize there's like this space in the middle where a lot of people are, you know, a lot of moms are where it's like, Yes, I'm love I'm loving my baby so much and I'm happy to be a mom. I'm grateful, but I'm also having a, a huge struggle with my own identity. Things have changed in my relationships. I don't feel fully supported. I also don't feel good at this. I feel guilty about everything. 
it wasn't extreme what I experienced and it also wasn't like perfect. And so I just thought I must be doing something wrong or something must be just deeply wrong with me that this is not more of a seamless natural transition as I had sort of been told it would be. I can kind of relate to that. Like when you say you're in the middle, it's, it's almost like, well, I'm not so on the one end of, you know, being in a deep depression or deep anxiety to where, you know, you think you should go get help. And it's very obvious that you're struggling on the outside. And it's more so like in your own head, but on the outside, you appear totally fine. And I also hate the term baby blues. I've talked about this before on the podcast with someone else. I forget who brought it up, but it's like, it's such a term that just kind of brushes off any kind of, you know, distress in postpartum. Like, oh, just baby blues. Like, can we call it what it actually is? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, it just diminishes what is actually going on, I would say. Because, I mean, there's approximately like 85% of moms will experience baby blues. So it is a thing, it happens. But by that three-week mark, if you're still experiencing that, then that's not what it is. It's more. And by the time you go to your six-week checkup, it's been more than three weeks. So I hear all the time, I went to my six-week checkup and they said it was baby blues. And it's like, not possible because you, you were at your six-week checkup. But we don't, I didn't know that when I was a new mom. I just, I just did not know. I thought it was, you know, one extreme or the other. So I think it's, it's certainly something that I mention whenever I can. Like, I'm just like, that's not what it is. Think about it. Ask the questions. And it's funny because I remember, I think it was one of Milo's first doctor's appointments. So days after he was born, my family doctor asked me like how I was doing. And as soon as she asked that, I just broke down in tears and she had a medical student working with her. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this poor student. (laughs) Because I just like broke down and she explained to me what you just said, how, you know what, in a, a few appointments from now, if you're still feeling this way, like let's talk more about it and like do something about it. But as for right now, like, I just want you to know that this is totally normal. And, you know, usually it will pass and it did for me. But yeah, so that's important to point out that if it's still happening at the six week mark, you know, you might want to do something about it for sure. So today our topic is self-compassion, which I'm not even sure I fully know what that is. Like I have an idea about what it is. But what is self-compassion and maybe like, what does it look like if someone has it versus someone who doesn't? So self-compassion is sort of this concern, I guess in a nutshell, it's this concern about the alleviation of suffering combined with a motivation to do something about that. And so you, the way you basically do that is that you treat yourself with the same kindness, support, gratitude, validation that you would a close friend or usually, especially with moms or your child. So you give, you, you're giving yourself that same level of grace. Kristen Neff is a psychologist who does a lot of research on self-compassion and she's kind of like the guru of self-compassion. And she kind of breaks it down into these three different components of actually what goes into it, that it's this combination of mindfulness, kindness, but then also a connection to humanity. So if you were in a moment and you were trying to figure out 
how to be self-compassionate to yourself, you would be mindful of your present emotion. And so you would kind of like take awareness of I'm in pain right now. This is a painful moment. Or I'm noticing a feeling of blank, of sadness, of anger. And without trying to judge it or minimize it and dismiss it or kind of like revel in it like we sometimes do and replay it over and over, you just acknowledge it. And then you move into that kind validating space of soothing and of course you feel this way. It's understandable for you to feel this way. Or I, you know, that makes sense. Like if you're having a hard time, so you kind of like talk to yourself and like soothe yourself. And then it also, the piece that I love about self-compassion, at least the way that she describes it is that it's, you then remind yourself that you are connected to other people in the sense that we're all imperfect and everybody struggles and pain is a part of life. It's a part of the human experience. So sometimes we get down on ourselves, like, I'm the only person who struggles like this. Or like I was telling you before, I had this thought that like other moms are out here just having a ball and I, for some reason, I'm struggling with it. And it must be because, and then you start telling yourself all these stories about who you are. But the humanity piece is kind of like, no, we're all, we all struggle to different degrees in different ways. And so maybe I can give myself a break because I'm a human and humans are imperfect. So it's kind of like, all three of those things are in tandem when you are practicing self-compassion. And so someone who's really low on self-compassion, do they have a tendency to kind of not acknowledge their feelings? Like I'm thinking about how so much today, whenever we have a negative feeling like anxiety, like low mood, whatever it might be, we kind of just like stuff it away and know like we want all the positive emotions, but really we're human and we're going to experience all these emotions. So like you were saying, let it happen, acknowledge it. So is someone who's low on self-compassion, is that their kind of go-to is to just not acknowledge and try and get rid of it? Yes, typically. So it could be, I think that that's kind of like a very common reaction is to just like try to put the feelings away, especially if you don't have much time to really deal with stuff anyway. It's like, it seems like that's going to be more of a burden if you really embrace it. If you're low on self-compassion though, typically, yeah, for some reason or another, either you're actively pushing the emotion away or you're getting the other like kind of extreme is that you're getting so fused with that emotion that it turns into like a full-on shame spiral. I'm awful. This is terrible. This is the worst. Why is my life like this? Why is it so unfair? Why am I, you know, and then maybe even you at that point become less effective because maybe you're in bed now all day or you're depressed or you're using a substance to just like numb out because it feels so overwhelming. So it could be either, either way. If you're low in self-compassion, you could be getting way too into that suffering or you could be pushing it away entirely and just not really acknowledging what's happening with you. Interesting. It makes me think about any time that I post something that, you know, you think is going to be an unpopular thing to post or, you know, I feel like, oh, like people are going to be like, what? Like you feel that way. And then, for example, like what was it last week or something I posted about how I'm always really happy when my husband is home because for some reason, 
like, I don't like being home alone with my toddler. And like, sometimes we have a great time, but it's more so like the anticipation of being home alone with him and the unknown of what's going to happen. Like, is he going to terrorize me the whole time? (laughs) Or are we going to have like a fun day? I don't know. So it's always comforting when my husband, when I know that he's going to be home. I mentioned something like that on my stories and so many people, I've never gotten so many responses in my life were like, oh my God, I feel the exact same way. I thought I was the only one. And it's almost like we're nervous to tell other moms about certain feelings that we have. And that kind of makes me think about this self-compassion thing. It's like, When I felt that way, I was like, why do I feel that way? And it's like, well, of course I feel that way because it's comforting to have my husband at home in the first place, like regardless of whether my toddler's home or not, but also it's so much easier to have a second adult around. And that is just like the truth. So of course I feel better when someone else is going to be here, especially my husband. But yeah, it makes me think about that, like acknowledging it and then being like, well, why do I feel that way? And then it's like, well, yeah, it makes sense that I feel that way. But you don't want to say it out loud because you're like, oh, people are going to think I'm, I don't enjoy being a mom or I don't love my kid. And it's like, no, that's not what it is at all. And to give yourself that grace and acknowledgement of, no, I feel that way and that's okay. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example too, because when you practice self-compassion in that moment and you were able to, like it would have, it took a little bit at least of self-compassion to even say that because you then had to like, like you said, you acknowledged it, but you also, there was a part of you that probably felt like maybe someone else feels like this. And then you find out, yeah, a whole lot of people feel like this. And so in you doing that, I think, I mean, everything that you do on social media, I feel like helps contribute to other moms sense of self-compassion because they're able to see true humanity. They're able to see someone else struggling with something that I thought was only me that I thought I was alone in because people don't talk about it because they don't want to think, you know, so it's just like this thing that no one's saying. And whenever you do that, you increase others capacity to be able to have have self-compassion because if nothing else, they can say, I know Renee feels like this. I know that. Like, I know I'm not the only one because I know she said it. So it's, I think social media in that way is so awesome. I mean, there's other ways that sometimes it's not as awesome, but that's, that's part of the ups and downs. There's the balance of everything that there's like these two sides to everything. So yeah, I think that's a really good example of how those things come together. All right. We are taking a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, HelloFresh. If you follow me on Instagram or TikTok, you know how much I struggle with dinner times. I don't like planning dinners. I don't like making grocery lists. I don't like cooking. The whole process from beginning to end, I just despise. Well, HelloFresh is here to make my life so much easier. Not only that, but my husband and I won't have to spend Sunday morning writing out ingredients that we need and planning out meals. This is going to free up so much time for us on the weekend. It's also going to save those text messages that I send to my husband at 3 p.m. That's like, what are we having for dinner? What should we do for dinner? Now we can just log into our HelloFresh account. They have a curated list of amazing meals that we can select from, and that's it. I know you guys know that I really struggle to follow recipes as well, and measuring out ingredients is not so much my thing. So their ingredients are already pre-measured. 
Now I don't have to spend three or four minutes trying to find the cumin because they have already measured it out for me and it's ready to go. The entire process of getting dinners ready is about to be so much easier for us and this is why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Dinners take about 30 minutes to make, so at 3.30 every day, I'm just going to make the dinner before I have to leave to get Milo at daycare, and then it's done. And the best part is, it's not just a basic meal that I would typically make on my own in 30 minutes. These are recipes that were designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts. There's over 25 recipes to choose from each week. There's vegetarian meals, there's gourmet options, there's lots of gluten-free options, and you guys know that I always try and avoid gluten, so I will definitely be checking those out. Some meals that I have my eye on right now are a falafel platter with roasted potatoes and garlic hummus drizzle. They also have a Mexican sweet potato bowl that uses Beyond Meat. If you want to make dinner time easier at your house, go to hellofresh.com momroom12 and use code momroom12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. So again, go to hellofresh.com slash momroom12 and use code momroom12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals. So you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. We're going to talk a little bit about self-compassion and mom guilt. I love the topic of mom guilt because for me, it was something that I feel like you always hear about it prior to having kids and you just kind of brush it off. You're like, oh, haha, like people make jokes about it. And it's just like this well-known thing that people don't really talk about what it's like. And then when I became a mom, I was like, wow, this is actually a problem. And it actually sucks the enjoyment out of a lot of moments in life. So yeah, how does self-compassion or how can it help alleviate feelings of mom guilt? 
So with mom guilt, and I think you're right, like the term is thrown around a lot and it's not just guilt. Mom guilt, I think usually incorporates a little bit of shame. Like there's the guilt part. Oh, I did something wrong. Or like, oops, I dropped that. I made a mistake, whatever it was. That's kind of like, I feel some guilt. But then the shame is like, there's something so deeply wrong with me because of the thing that I did or the thing that I forgot. So with self-compassion, that piece about I'm connected to other people and people are imperfect and people make mistakes and the mistakes are not definitive. Like they don't define your character. They don't mean that you're this fatally flawed person. It just means I'm a human, other people struggle too. And so like in those moments, it's almost like a mantra that you create to yourself. Let's say I told my kid that I'm going to, we're going to do something together this weekend. We're going to go to the park and let's say the weekend comes and all these things come up and we don't end up going. And I feel like guilt. And it's, it's that part is like rational guilt. I said I was going to do something and I didn't, and that goes against my values. So that's part of the self-compassionate talk too. Like, why do I feel this way? Okay. Cause it went against my values. Well, if something goes against my values, then what can I do? What would I need right now in this moment to feel a little bit better about this? And that might guide me to apologizing and then like repairing it or going somewhere the next day. But there's this idea that like, it's not necessarily that I'm terrible because I'm not the only mom who forgot to go to the park sometimes. Like these things happen and they're a part of life. And even my child is a human who's going to have a life that has pain in it. And sometimes I might even be a part of that pain. And like, that's a really hard idea to think about because I, Sometimes I think the, the thing that's underneath mom guilt is this expectation that we can help our child's lives be perfect. And although we all know cognitively like, oh, no one's perfect, we try as moms to like, I've tried to like stop my child. I see them tripping and I try to like stop it from happening. Like you don't want them to be hurt. And, you know, so I think realizing too that not only am I a human person who's going to have pain in my life and, and things does it happen? But my child is a human person. And so what can I do? I can help show this child how you repair when there's a wound or when there's something that happens. So I think with the self-compassionate, it forces you to look at what do I need in this moment? Not in a selfish way, but like, it might be, I need to repair. It might be, you know, like I need to protect or I need to provide something, but you're able to like to tune in as opposed to just going with the guilt and going down that shame spiral of how awful I am. An example that I had a, a meeting, like a podcast with someone booked a couple weeks ago and at 10 AM or whatever it was, I messaged them on Instagram and I was like, Oh, like, are you ready to go? I'm in the zoom chat. So what had happened is her son woke up sick and they had to go get COVID tests. And she felt so bad. And she was like, I never do this. Like I never miss anything. And in my mind, I was like, this is not a big deal at all. Like, don't worry, we can reschedule. Like it's totally fine. But then me and her had the conversation about how when someone else does it, you're like, oh my God, no problem. Like, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. But if you're the one that messes up, it is like, (laughs) you know, like you just want to crawl under a rock. You feel so bad. Yeah, you do. And that's like, I love because the way you even said it, like your voice even changed when you're talking about to her, you're like, hey, like, it's okay. Right? Like we talk in these soft tones and we're like, there, there, it's all right. I'm okay. You're okay. I still think you're great. We'll reschedule. Same stuff we do with our kids. Like, of course, mommy still loves you. You know, 
But then when we talk to ourselves, sometimes it gets nasty. Like the inner critic is just kind of like, how could you? You never do this. Now she thinks this of you. Now she'll never book you again. Like now, you know, and you just start saying all this stuff that in some ways, you know, just like maybe even subconsciously, we think it will protect us that then I won't make that mistake again. If I really beat myself up really badly about it, that'll be like my lesson. I'll learn that lesson so I won't do it again. So this is actually a motivator. But research shows us that it's not and that people who actually practice self-compassion, they, they're more effective in the long term. It might work in the short term, like sometimes coaches or like drill sergeants or whoever, they might be able to get you to do what they need in that moment. But the long-term effects of that on your own psychological and physiological health are not great. Guilt can be so powerful, but it's also useless. Like it does not predict or change future behavior at all. So you feeling guilty because, you know, you didn't make dinner today and you have to give your kid whatever from the kitchen, you feel guilty, but that's not going to change your behavior. Like it's going to keep happening. So it's almost like this negative emotion or feeling that has no, like it doesn't affect our future behavior. So it's pointless and it just sucks. <laughs> yeah. And it just puts you in a bad mood and you're less effective for what you actually want to do, you know, which usually, which is be present and like enjoy your life. And you're not able to do that when you are feeling so badly about all these different things, or you're talking to yourself in such a negative way. So Self-compassion and comparing ourselves to others. So how self-compassion can help us stop comparing. Obviously, in motherhood, we compare ourselves to everybody. And yeah, I don't know why it is amplified once you become a mom. Like, I have my own thoughts of you know, I feel like when we become a mom, we're just like inundated with information and we're very aware that people have very strong opinions about things like breastfeeding or co-sleeping or whatever it is. And so that makes us also feel a little bit insecure. But yeah, how does self-compassion help you kind of get out of that cycle of comparing yourself to other parents or moms? So first I think with self-compassion, there's a, there's a piece of it that is going to be kind to yourself about even making the comparison that you're able to say, okay, comparing myself, I'm feeling this way first. How am I feeling? Cause sometimes we don't even notice, like you might hang out with a different, like another person who brings something up that makes you start comparing yourself. And then an hour later, you're in a terrible mood and you're like, I don't even know what happened. So being able to tune in to why am I feeling this way? What am I feeling? And then to be able to use the self-compassion to kind of remind yourself that this other person who you're comparing yourself to is also struggling with something that you don't know about. Like it's, she, you may look and see everybody looks like they're fully put together. All of their outfits are matching. My kids are not matching right now. And I feel terrible because they go to school and I don't know how they look, whatever. But we don't actually know like what's going on in this woman's mind. We don't know what's going on in her house. We don't know what's going on in her relationships or how maybe she really, really stressed herself to get them dressed like that. And now she's like frazzled. We have no idea. And it's kind of like what you and I talked about in the beginning here. A lot of energy is often put into looking like you have it together. So it's just deceiving. And I think when you, if you were to think about yourself as a part of hu common humanity, you would think 
just like I have stuff and I'm imperfect, she does too. She's a human. And so it's not like, it's not a fair comparison. Cause I think that's also the thing in general with comparison is that it's usually not fair. Like we usually only compare ourselves to people who we think are doing it better than us. And then when we see people who are doing it, like let's say worse than us or people who are having a really hard time too, we dismiss it for whatever reason. Like, well, yeah, but that doesn't count. But what really counts is this other person who has got all this stuff that I want. And, but then the other piece of it too, is that sometimes comparison is useful. The, the balance thing again, like sometimes if I'm finding myself comparing myself to, let's say a certain person or like a certain other mom on Instagram or a certain friend, then I'm able to step back and say like, okay, what is this, compa- what, what is this trying to tell me? Like, why is this happening? It's not just because I'm neurotic. Like, what else is it? And then maybe there's something that I, that, that will motivate me. Like maybe I feel like I should be doing X, Y, Z, and maybe I can, can take a step to be able to do that because it's in line with my values. And so maybe it bothers me when I see that because it's actually something I would like to be doing, but maybe for whatever reason I can't, or I didn't think I could. So let me use that to help myself. So I loved always coming back to that question of what do I need right now, as opposed to like, what's wrong with me right now? I always think about comparison. Like I always say, don't compare yourself and then feel bad. Just be inspired by somebody else. So I always give the example. I follow one of my friends on Instagram. She's like my Instagram friend and she's vegan. And I love like she makes meals every day and like she feeds her kids so well. And it would be very easy for me to compare myself to what she does and feel bad. But then at this, instead I look at what she does and I take little things like little products that she buys or, you know, I try different things out and I get inspired from things that she does. But at the same time, I have to remember that her priorities Like she's a holistic nutritionist, like that's her thing. So like that is her priority, that brings her joy, that's her thing. I always have to acknowledge to myself that what other people are doing is great, but I don't want to spend the time and effort doing that. And that's okay. I would rather put time and effort into my podcast and social media stuff instead of spending two hours in the kitchen making, you know, meals and stuff. And that is very important to understand. I think like not everyone has the same priorities, but we look at other people on social media and we're like, Oh, I should be doing this. You know, why am I not doing that? And it's like, well, you're doing other stuff and that's not your priority and it's okay. Just acknowledge that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Cause that's the, that's the part too, is that there's part of the whole I'm a human and I'm imperfect deal is that there are going to be things that I'm average at. There are going to be things that I'm above average and I'm just like crushing. And then there's going to be things that I'm, I don't, that I, maybe I don't do well. And that that's also okay. Cause sometimes just, just kind of like culturally there's in some ways, I remember when I used to work in the hospital, if you were to get like an average rating, it was like, Ooh, sorry. Like what's going on? You know, because everybody wants to get exceptional. Everybody wants to be exceptional. And like we are in some things, 
but not in everything. There's just no way. So I like what you're saying that then that forces you too to look into like, well, what, what is my thing? What are my values? What are the things that are important to me? Cause that's where my energy is going to go. And if like, let's say the holistic meals are important to her, that means she's spending a lot of energy on that, but she may not. So this is where comparison I think can become a little more fair as when you're like, but she might not have a podcast. Like, and that's not like a terrible thing. It's just, so some of her energy is being spent there. It's taking her away from other places because that's part of her whole like human life. And with my life, I'm doing the podcast. Maybe I'm not doing as much of the holistic stuff, but I can bring it in what I want. Like I can take some of the, I can be inspired by some of my comparison and then I can just leave the rest. It's so helpful to think of it in that way. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. So next, I'm happy that I thought eventually of the priorities thing because I love that point. <laughs> it just took me yeah. a while to get there. <laughs> I do like that point too. Yeah. So perfectionism and self-compassion, which, you know, obviously as moms, there's like this unrealistic, you know, ideal of what motherhood should be. So how does self-compassion kind of alleviate that perfectionism in us? I don't know if it fully alleviates it completely. If you're someone who tends toward perfectionism, 
I think it's helpful to note that like, okay, this is, this is part of who I am in some ways. It's one of the risk factors that make it a little more difficult to adjust postpartum. If you're somebody who, you know, like wants things to be just right and just so and planned out, but also people who are more perfectionistic, they usually have a little bit more of a loud inner critic or like a kind of like continuous inner critic. And I think that this is where self-compassion and even sometimes personal therapy can be really helpful in figuring out like, so I'm noticing that this is happening. Where is it coming from? What is it telling me? What do I need? When did this voice get so loud that's telling me I need to have everything perfect and I'm not? If you were to then like take that train of thought of what do I, again, what do I need right now? What is it trying to tell me? Then you might come up with like, oh, there have been things that have happened in my life. And so this is where like the empathy and the humanity of there may have been things that have happened. There may have been messages that I got as a kid or an, as, as an adolescent that have led me to believe that in order to be a worthwhile person, I have to do everything right. And then you're able to look at that thought with compassion, like, oh, like that's, that's a hard thought to carry around. Like that's, this is difficult for me. This is painful for me. And then to be able to like, be kind to yourself in those moments instead. I say that it's easier said than done for sure, because if you tend toward perfectionism and things aren't going well, that's also a reality. So I want to be clear that with self-compassion, you're not just telling yourself, oh, it's fine. It's all good. You're good. Just move on. It's more like, this is really painful. I feel like I messed everything up. If just like if someone came to you, a friend, you wouldn't say like, yeah, you did. Like you really need to get it together. But we say that stuff to ourselves like, okay, so just stop it. Just like get with it. Do, do better. You can do it. Just cut this out as opposed to doing the whole, like, it's okay. I'm okay. I'm still a person outside of who I am as a mom too. And like talking yourself through with the self-compassion. So I think it's like, it's helpful to use in the moment, but it's also helpful to be aware of the fact that those thoughts are still going to pop up and we have to notice them and honor them too. And like, be curious about them. So why do we think that mothers have a more difficult time being self-compassionate than maybe other people? Ooh, that's a good question. So in terms of the research on self-compassion, it is kind of generally shown that women are more compassionate to others, but less compassionate to themselves. Some of that being just like, perhaps like socialized norms around what it means to be feminine or what it means to be a mom. And I think with mothers in particular, there's this spoken and unspoken tie between you being a mom and that being your identity. Like you're not just a person, an individual, you're now tasked with caring for someone else. And that's your thing. Like, just like we were just talking, we were just talking about maybe the podcast is your thing, or maybe like the holistic food thing is her thing. There's kind of this like shared almost assumption that when you become a mom, that's your thing and that's it. And this is like your, and I mean, people have told, I've, I've heard people say that before, like, that's your one job is to keep that baby safe. And that's true. That's one of your jobs. It's like a super important one. But I think moms get so caught up in that because it's like hard to separate out our identity as this person from our identity as a mom. So then if I feel like I'm failing at something as a mom, it feels like I'm a failure because that's my one thing I'm supposed to do. 
Yeah. When people ask me, what's the hardest part of motherhood for you? I always say, like, I had Milo when I was 34 and I was in grad school for 10 plus years. Like, I was 100% focused on myself, like reaching my goals, like applying to this scholarship, getting into this conference, publishing this paper. Like, that's all I was focused on. I could do yoga whenever I wanted. Like, it was all about, like, I'm going to be the best that I can be. And it was all about me. So then having a baby that completely flips around and I'm like, you know, I took the 12 month maternity leave and mentally I prepared for the maternity leave and told myself, like, I don't have to worry about school. Like I'm technically not allowed to do anything with school and I'm just taking this 12 months to focus on Milo and that's it. And so that kind of made it easier But as soon as that maternity leave was up, it was like, okay, what am I doing? Like, let's go like finished my PhD. And then it was just like, okay, you've got to, like, I started the blog. I started TikTok, the podcast, because then I was in quarantine. But yeah, like that is the hardest part is I was so used to just focusing on myself that it was like hard to now adopt this identity that you kind of feel like you were saying it's spoken and unspoken that that now is your identity and that should be 100% of your focus. And I always say this, like, that's not who I am. Like I thought when I was younger, Oh yeah, I'm going to be a stay at home mom. Like, cause my mom was, and that's how I grew up. And it just seemed like, you know, the thing to do, but Oh my God, I am so <laughs> not like that. And then I always remind people that, you know, there's some people who are working a career, a full-time job, and they wish that they could be a stay-at-home mom. And then there's people who have to be a stay-at-home mom for whatever reason, and they wish they could go have a career. Like we're all different. And that was the hardest thing is you become a mom and that's supposed to be your identity and what your focus is. Absolutely. And it's like when you're able to hold that thought that there are different people who have different ideas about being a stay-at-home mom or working outside of the home. And like, none of us are necessarily wrong. Like it's your preference. It's what you want to do. So that if I'm comparing myself to someone else, I don't quite know her story. Yes. She might be working outside of the home and she might be miserable with it, or she might be loving it and thriving. Like we make so many assumptions about what other people's lives are and about what this says about me that if I if I don't enjoy it then what does that mean about and it's just like it means that I'm a person with different preferences and priorities and and that's okay like I, that's probably my favorite thing to add to the end of my sentences like it's okay, okay. <laughs> um, that's fine right like so yeah I agree with you fully on that what are some tips on how we can start to be more self-compassionate mm, so If you're new to mindfulness, or maybe it's something that you haven't tried before, I would say working on your own personal practice of how you want to be more mindful. It doesn't have to be like a formal meditation or anything like that. It could be, but it could also just be like practicing, noticing what is the thought that I'm having right now? What's the feeling and how do I label it so that you're able to tune in for yourself and show up for yourself and be kind to yourself when you need it. A lot of times we don't know when we actually need it. So I'd say work on that. If there's there are lots of mindfulness apps out there too and different exercises you can do. But like 
focus on identifying what's happening for you at any given time. Just stop during the day and ask yourself, what am I thinking, feeling? What body sensations am I having? Just like practice building that muscle. This is like my favorite thing to do is stop and be like, okay, why do I feel this way? And kind of work through that. And I didn't know that that was self-compassion, but well, I feel good about myself now. (laughs) Yeah. Like it helps to get, it helps to get there. Cause if you don't know, our mind just kind of will do a lot of like funky stuff on its own. That's not actually maybe reflective of our experience. So I think that's a huge, yeah, that's an important component to it. I always advise my clients to develop their own mantras and the things that feel salient to them because some of the self-compassion affirmations that are really common are like, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be, you know, gentle and kind to myself. I like a lot of those. Some of them though don't fit with me as well. And it just feels like that wouldn't feel right. That would feel odd for me to say. So don't use those. Go through though and find ones that feel right to you. Like I, or even like, I want to be kind to myself in this moment. If you don't feel like you can fully say, I deserve to be kind to myself in the moment, but coming up with things that remind you of all of those parts that we talked about today, even like everyone makes mistakes or everyone gets it wrong sometimes, or I'm like, this moment doesn't define me. My values are X, Y, Z, but really speaking to yourself is really important, especially if you do have an inner critic voice that's kind of like loud or that's like this negative commentary. It's almost like you create a competing message to play over and over again. So I think it's important to come up with some affirmations of your own. Also surrounding yourself with people who are compassionate to themselves and compassionate to others, because often the, the, the work we do on self-compassion ends up trickling out to our relationships. Like if I'm able to view myself as a flawed person who has their own story and their own reasons, how they got to be where they are, then I can, eventually I can do that for you too. And I can say like, oh, you know, she probably, you know, had this and that going on. I can put myself in your shoes a little bit better too. So I would say it's important too to like look at your relationships and sometimes self-compassion is really like kind and sweet and soothing. And sometimes it's a little bit fierce. Like sometimes it's protecting yourself and your needs and your sense of peace. And maybe it's setting boundaries with people can be a form of self-compassion too. And being able to express like what you need to others. But of course, first you have to know what it is. And then that self-compassion piece tells you, I deserve to have my needs met right now in this moment. So those are all, I feel like I got off track, but those are all kind of ways you can, you can coach yourself as well. You can, there are on the selfcompassion.org website, there's like a little quiz you can do to see how self-compassionate you are, if you're like low on it or high on it. And then there's lots of resources to books. There's a mindful self-compassion workbook that I would recommend. It has a lot of very specific exercises in it that you could do if you're a person who, you know, likes to like do homework and stuff like that. But yeah. The resources was my next question. So there's the website that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And then the workbook, is that online? Yeah. There's links to that on the website. It's by Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. So it talks about a lot of what we just talked about today, but it gives like exercises too. But yeah, all of that is on that website. Uh, Selfcompassion.org. I'm going to link those things in the episode notes so that people can find them. 
So yeah, lastly, where can people find you online? And do you have anything going on that you want to talk about like projects? Online, I'm on Instagram a lot at Dr. Angel Montfort. And then my website for my practice is www.cfmmh.com for Center for Maternal Mental Health. I post a lot about grace and self-compassion in motherhood. And I think that that's become, the more that I learn about self-compassion, the more that's becoming a focus with myself and my clients where I'm just like, everybody should have more self-compassion. Well, I'll put your Instagram and your website link in the episode notes as well. And it was really nice chatting with you today. Obviously, we will keep in touch. Thank you so much. This was a great chat and I think it's going to help a lot of people. So everyone listening, go follow Dr. Angel Montfort on Instagram and let's just all be more self-compassionate. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, it was nice chatting with you. Yes, you as well. This was awesome. Thank you. Enjoy. I'm assuming it's sunny in Florida, so. It is. It is. It's super sunny. It's like 80 degrees today. Oh, stop. I'm going to turn on my little space heater now. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, well, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye.